This is the Daily Signal podcast for Wednesday, July 13th. I'm Doug Blair. And I'm Virginia Allen. What will history say about this past Supreme Court session? Will we ever know who leaked the opinion on the Dobbs case? And how is Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson going to change the Supreme Court moving forward? On today's show, Heritage Foundation legal experts Zach Smith and Giancarlo Canaparo join the show to answer these questions and give us a preview of the big cases the justices will hear in the fall. Before we get to Virginia's conversation with Zach Smith and Giancarlo Canaparo, let's hit our top news stories of the day. The Senate Judiciary Committee hosted a hearing on Tuesday about the legal landscape in the country following the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade last month. Several moments from the hearing went viral, including a back and forth between Senator Josh Hawley, Republican from Missouri, and Berkeley law professor Kiara Bridges, where Bridges accused the senator of being transphobic for saying he thought that men couldn't get pregnant. Here's some of that exchange via Jason Rance on Twitter. So um, I want to recognize that your line of questioning um, is transphobic, <laughs> um, and it opens up trans people to violence by not recognizing that. Wow, you're saying that I'm opening up people to violence by asking whether or not women are the folks who can have pregnancies? So I'm one, I want to note that one out of five transgender uh, persons have attempted suicide. So I think it's important because of my us. line of questioning. Because so we can't talk about it. Because denying that trans people exist and pretending not to know that they exist. I'm is denying dangerous. that trans people exist by asking Are you? you if you're talking Are you? about women Are you? having pregnancies. Do you believe that uh, men can get pregnant? No, I don't think. Men can get <laughs> so you are denying that trans people exist. Thank and that leads. Additionally, Senators Mike Lee, Republican from Utah, and Ted Cruz, Republican from Texas, entered a letter penned by committee chair Dick Durbin, Democrat Illinois, into the congressional record that showed Durbin had been in favor of getting rid of abortion on demand. Here's Cruz via Mary Margaret Olihan. Now, maybe you might say, you know what, Joe Biden was out of step. Well, there's someone else who had similar views, the chairman of this committee. In a June 1983 letter, the chairman of this committee wrote, quote, I have clearly studied the issue, abortion in depth, in favor of the Eagleton Amendment, which states clearly that the right to abortion is not guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution. The effect of this amendment will be to return us to the legal environment which existed before Roe v. Wade in 1973, signed Richard J. Durbin, member of Congress. That view continued in August of 1989. Chairman Durbin wrote, and again I quote, I believe we should end abortion on demand, and at every opportunity I have translated this belief into votes in the House of Representatives. Continued to say, I continue to believe the Supreme Court's decision in Roe v. Wade should be reversed. First Lady Jill Biden has issued an apology for drawing a comparison between Hispanic Americans and tacos. On Monday, the First Lady delivered a speech at a Latinx Inclusion Conference luncheon. Raul helped build this organization with the understanding that the diversity of this community, as distinct as the Bogodas of the Bronx, as beautiful as the blossoms of Miami, and as unique as the breakfast tacos here in San Antonio, (laughs) is your strength. 
Jill Biden's remarks received instant criticism. The National Association of Hispanic Journalists issued a formal statement saying we are not tacos. They added that our heritage as Latinos is shaped by various diasporas, cultures, and food traditions. Do not reduce us to stereotypes. Michael LaRosa is press secretary to Jill Biden and said in a tweet Tuesday that the first lady apologizes that her words conveyed anything but pure admiration and love for the Latino community. In the ongoing protests against the Dobbs decision, a leftist group is offering to pay a cash bounty for information from local workers in the nation's capital on the location of one of the conservative justices out in public. Shutdown DC tweeted last week, DC service industry workers, if you see Kavanaugh, Alito, Thomas, Gorsuch, Coney Barrett, or Roberts, DM us with the details, DM standing for direct message. We'll Venmo you $50 for a confirmed sighting and $200 if they're still there 30 minutes after your message. The bounty comes days after protesters attempted to harass Justice Brett Kavanaugh outside of a restaurant in Washington, D.C. And that'll do it for headlines today. But stay tuned for my conversation with Heritage Foundation legal experts Zach Smith and Giancarlo Canaparo as we discuss what to know about the Supreme Court in the months ahead. Are you looking for quick conservative policy solutions to current issues? Sign up for Heritage's weekly newsletter, The Agenda. In The Agenda, you will learn what issues Heritage scholars on Capitol Hill are working on, what position conservatives are taking, and links to our in-depth research. The Agenda also provides information on important events happening here at Heritage that you can watch online, as well as media interviews from our experts. Sign up for The Agenda on Heritage.org today. I am so pleased to welcome back to the show today Heritage Foundation legal experts and hosts of the SCOTUS 101 podcast, Zach Smith and Giancarlo Canaparo. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having us. <laughs> Thanks, Virginia. So the Supreme Court has just finished its term, and you know I'm no legal expert, so correct me if I'm wrong, um, but this Supreme Court term felt pretty historic. How would you all describe this best term? Oh, I was a snooze fest as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Nothing interesting happened at all. I know. I didn't think we were going to have enough uh, information to cover. No, 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 no. Nothing at all. <laughs> nice so. and quiet. <laughs> yeah. No, it was, in fact, a, an absolutely historic term, capped, of course, by uh, the great—I mean, the greatest victory that, of the conservative legal movement. It's mm. been going on. This fight has been happening for 50 years Yeah. Uh, to overrule Roe versus Wade, which was— uh, from a legal perspective, a constitutional abomination. Mm -hmm. The Supreme Court said, you know, we don't care that there's nothing in the Constitution here. Uh, We want this outcome and we're going to impose it. And that was a huge blow to our constitutional system. It was a huge blow to American democracy. Uh, And it is great that we are finally fixed that mistake. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You know, and I think it's it's interesting, Virginia, because each term there's typically one, maybe two cases where I think you look at it and you say, wow, students will be reading this case in their you know first year law classes you know, 10, 15 years from now. But it seems like this term, there were many, many of those mm-hmm. cases, not only the Dobbs case that GC was talking about, but there was also an important uh, Second Amendment case, also several important religious liberty cases. And so this really was a blockbuster term uh, in the history of the court. And don't forget the sort of the sleeper issues were some of the administrative law cases, which Hmm. we can talk about uh, in some detail 
Uh, but those, you know, they don't tend to get noticed as much because they don't implicate sort of the high profile political issues of the day. But in many ways, those are actually some of the most important cases the Supreme hmm. Court decided this term. Do you mean to tell me notice and comment rulemaking isn't the sexiest <laughs> issue the court addresses? I was going to say, I haven't seen many headlines, you know, talking about that. <laughs> For some reason, it doesn't catch the public's interest as well, much. Well, apparently I'm the outlier then. <laughs> <laughs> but you, if you would share, share briefly, like, what what is the significance of, of some of those cases? Yeah, so let me, let me uh, we'll start from the, the very beginning, right, with the Constitution. The Constitution, its great genius was not only that it was written law, because, uh, you know, Britain had a Constitution that was not written. Other countries did not have written constitutions. But also the idea that power is separated. Mm-hmm. You can't protect freedom as long as the power over that freedom is in one person or one institution's hands. So they cut out power. Congress gets to make the laws, the president gets to enforce the laws, the judiciary gets to interpret them. Well, ever since Woodrow Wilson and then FDR came along, we have consolidated power in the administrative state. So these executive branch agencies, the alphabet soup of Washington, have the power to uh, essentially write laws. Congress has said, look, we don't want to do our job. You do it for us. And they have the power to enforce those laws. And sometimes they have the power to hear cases and trials about those laws. So you've got an enormous amount of power agglomerated in the administrative state. And like any sort of power hoarding body, it grows. It it, it expands its own power. Mm -hmm. Uh, And for many years, the judiciary has been okay with that under a a doctrine uh, called Chevron and Auer. These are deference doctrines. The court has said, look, as long as the agency is doing something that's sort of reasonable, we're going to let them just do whatever they want. and that has been a big problem for a lot of reasons. Not only is it sort of as a matter of first principles wrong on the Constitution, but you get a lot of uh, very progressive types who stock uh, administrative agencies because they tend to be the kinds who think that you know the government is the salvation of the people. Uh, and you have just seen the, the administrative state run away with itself. Uh, and this term, we got a number of cases where the Supreme Court put the brakes on that in a pretty mm-hmm. big way and said, look, no. Uh, the legislative power belongs to the people and their representatives in Congress. And, you know, the executive agencies need to stop this runaway uh, power grab. Wow. That's encouraging to mm-hmm. see that there was actually a little bit of a line in the sand drawn. Right. Zach, I want to ask you, I think, um, a question that I have repeatedly heard individuals ask over the past month as we look back at some of these you know, significant cases. And, of course, with the Dobbs case being one of the most significant of the past term is, are, are we ever going to learn who leaked Alito's opinion, draft opinion of the Dobbs case? Um, and if so, you know, is that going to be like 10 years down the road after, you know, everyone's <laughs> kind of forgotten? Right. Well, I certainly hope we learn who the leaker is because, you know, we've talked about it before. It was such a breach of decorum uh, for the core, it really hampered the ability of the justices and the clerks, uh, you know, their ability to freely exchange information, which is so vital uh, mm-hmm. to, to their ability to do their jobs and decide cases fairly and impartially. And so I think it's important that we find out who the leaker is. Unfortunately, we haven't heard a lot of information about the investigation. We know that the uh, the chief justice put the marshal of the Supreme Court in charge of the investigation. And we've heard drips and drabs of information coming out of the court since the leak about what processes are being put in place to find out who leaked the opinion and what's being done to hopefully prevent that from happening again in the future. You know, several months ago, we heard 
that the marshal of the court was asking law clerks for their cell phones, uh, maybe some call record information. We don't know what form that request took. We don't know if it was mandatory, you know, do it or you'll be fired. We don't know if it was part of a criminal process. We don't know if it was, you know, something as simple as a simple request. You know, do you mind sharing your call logs with us? Mm -hmm. And that's important because depending on the form of the ask, you know, that has different legal consequences, different legal ramifications. And so there's a lot we really don't know. But hopefully, now that the court's term is over, the justices have done the hard work of getting their final opinions out the door, that really the focus can be, uh, you know, on the investigation, finding out who leaked the opinion, and really, you know, focusing on how to prevent this uh, from happening again yeah. in the future. Giancarlo, I know that um, a lot of people brought up, well, why don't they just have everyone who works within the Supreme Court building sign something saying, you know, I did not leak? Um, why why hasn't that happened? Would that be a good strategy to make people actually put on paper and be forced to you know, either obviously tell the truth or have to lie? Well, in, ter in terms of strategy, what it could do is if you ended up finding the leaker, give you an avenue to prosecute them for lying to a, to law enforcement. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not clear to me. Zach might, you know, he, Zach was a former federal prosecutor, so he he'll have some better sense of how investigations well, go. Well, you're you're certainly on the right track, uh, GC. You know, John Malcolm and I actually wrote an article about this on the Daily Signal right after the leak happened. Unfortunately, you know, it's not clear that there's a criminal law directly on point that hmm. would apply to this situation if someone who worked for the court actually leaked the draft opinion. Opinion. There's a couple of uh, criminal laws that might apply, but again, there may be some issues with that. What you're talking about, Virginia, by having someone sign essentially a declaration under penalty of perjury that they did not leak, well, if someone refuses to sign it, that's a great place to start the investigation. Or if someone signs it and they in fact lie, mm -hmm. uh, saying they didn't leak anything when in fact they did, well, that is a criminal violation. It's a 1001 violation. We've heard about it a lot in the news uh, lately related to the you know Russia collusion investigation and others. Uh, but GC was certainly right uh, that that would provide a much clearer pathway uh, to a criminal prosecution if someone lied on that mm -hmm. declaration. Mm -hmm. It'll be fascinating to see how that continues to roll out, and hopefully we will get some news on that. Now, I, I want to ask you all a little bit about um, this particular Supreme Court as a whole. You know, we're hearing a lot of statements in the media, uh, a lot of people making claims about this Supreme Court being much more conservative, maybe in their political views than other Supreme Courts in past history. Do you all think that that is a fair assessment? How does the Supreme Court compare to some of the past uh, sitting courts we've seen? So, yeah, let me start pushing back on the narrative that what the court does is inherently political. Hmm. The court is conservative in a small c way. Uh, but what that really highlights is that there's two aspects to conservatism. There is conservatism with a big C, where you're, you're striving for political outcomes which are conservative. But conservatives have done a good job of developing a method of doing what judges do that is conservative in a small c way but not reaching for, for politically conservative outcomes. And what that is is it's called originalism when, it's, when we're talking about the constitution or textualism when we're talking about statutes. And the, the principle is simple. It's that judges have the power to interpret the law, uh, not the power to make law. And so they need to be constrained by what the law actually says, the meaning of the words on the page. And this is a 
typically a small C conservative position, although there are a lot of very thoughtful, smart, liberal law professors out there, some of the best ones, uh, uh, some of the smartest ones, even on the left, who agree that originalism and textualism is the way to go. Uh, but, but that process of limiting judges to the text of statutes is often going to produce conservative big C political outcomes simply because it means that uh, the, the legal process isn't going to lend itself to new and liberal expressions of the law that don't pre-exist them, right? So if you want to change the law uh, and you are a liberal and you want a judge to change the law for you rather than the legislature to rewrite a law, a judge isn't going to have that power if they are a textualist judge. So it's going to lend to small c conservative outcomes oftentimes, but not always. Um, but it is a mistake to say that this is political conservatism mm -hmm. at work. What it is is it's judges being restrained. It is judges saying the text of a statute, which may have been set down many years ago when social mores were different, for instance, controls until Congress or the people change it themselves. Uh, so in that way, uh, we have seen a shift. This is really the first time since originalism uh, really took off as an idea and a, and a theory uh, in the 80s with Ed Meese and Bork and Justice Scalia. Uh, this is the first time we have had a, f a majority of the court that is really committed to that idea. Uh, and that is really heartening. You know, there, there will be growing pains as some of the really aggressive activist decisions of the past are reversed uh, because the court used to think that the judges were philosopher kings who could do what they wanted. But uh, So we're going to have some growing pains as we correct those mistakes. Sure. But that in the long run is a very good thing. So now we have uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson. She's been sworn in as Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson coming onto the court. Um, Zach, I want to start with you. How do you think that she's going to affect this sitting court? Well, I don't think she'll change the ideological makeup of the court. You know, that was part of the issues surrounding the appointment of Justice Amy Coney Barrett and other justices. They shifted the ideological makeup. You know, going from what was in the past uh, a judge or a justice who was adhering to a living constitutionalist approach, you know, basically saying they were free to update the law as they saw fit, uh, to a justice who was, who was adhering to that originalist textualist approach that GC was talking about. Now, Judge Kintanji Brown Jackson, now Justice Jackson, you know, during her confirmation hearing, I thought it was very interesting because she echoed, to some extent, some of those originalist textualist talking points uh, that many of the other ju justices who are currently on the court have also been, you know, publicly speaking about for many years now. Now, given her judicial record, uh, I doubt uh, she is a committed originalist or textualist. I certainly hope she sticks to many of the uh, talking points <laughs> she raised in her confirmation hearing. Uh, but based on her past record, I'm skeptical uh, that she will. And so at the end of the day, you know, I don't think uh, her elevation to the court will change the ideological composition. And I suspect she will be a member of, you know, of the court's solid liberal block. Yeah, let me weigh in on, on one point that she's replacing Justice Breyer. Justice Breyer is a reliable vote on the liberal wing of the court. But Justice Breyer has also over time demonstrated that he is very capable of building coalitions on the court. He is, as many of the former clerks or justices will tell you, he's one of the most amiable guys on the court after maybe Justice Thomas, who mm. is, you know, uh, just the happiest and friendliest <laughs> right. guy any of them right. have ever met. Uh, but that meant that a lot of times you would see uh, uh, Justice Breyer would write majority opinions, oftentimes in very high-profile cases, where it seems that he was able to unite a coalition around him. 
By contrast, uh, compare him to Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who does not have that ability. She is very much sort of uh, – oftentimes she is f too far out on the left even for Justice Kagan and Breyer to join her. She writes alone very often. Uh, she has not demonstrated the ability to build coalitions. Hmm. Uh, so – and Justice Kagan does it sometimes uh, but not to Justice Breyer's extent. So it will be interesting with Justice Breyer gone, will the left – the three liberals uh, on the court, will they sort of retreat farther left and, and be out on their own or will one of them step up and uh, be a coalition builder like Breyer was? Mm -hmm. Well, and the other interesting aspect to that is, you know, a lot of Judge Jackson's time was spent on the district court. She is a trial judge. Mm -hmm. A trial judge sits alone and is really the king or queen of their realm. Basically, what they say in the courtroom goes. She was only on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, an intermediate appellate court, for a very brief period of time. And so going from that situation where essentially she is in charge of the show, she is the director essentially, you know, calling the shots to having to work in that more collegial environment, build the coalitions to reach a preferred outcome. I imagine that's that's a difficult transition for many judges to make. And so I would suspect there may also be a learning curve uh, for her as she adjusts to that, mm -hmm. that new dynamic. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, give us a little bit of a preview of what's to come. Already the Supreme Court has announced some of the cases that they're going to hear in their next session. What are the cases that you all are watching um, and, and when do the justices return to the court? So there are two big election-related cases that I think are worth keeping on everyone's radar. That's uh, Milligan v. Merrill and then Moore v. Harper. Uh, Milligan deals with redistricting issues coming out of Alabama. It's essentially the court is being asked to review what standard applies when states try to draw majority-minority districts. Uh, and so there's been a lot of uncertainty in that area, a lot of litigation surrounding it. And so that'll be a very interesting case to watch in the fall. Now, the other case, the Moore case out of North Carolina, involves something called the Independent State Legislature Doctrine. The Constitution says that state legislatures are free to regulate the time, place, and manner of elections. Uh, Congress can, in certain circumstances, step in and and override those decisions. But traditionally, you know, states and state legislatures in particular have set those parameters for elections. Uh, what we saw in the last election, particularly in 2020, was that other state uh, entities, either executive branch uh, entities, the governor or executive branch agencies or the courts, were stepping in, changing the rules and regulations that the state legislatures had put in place. And so the court's being asked to decide essentially whether uh, the state legislatures do indeed have the predominant authority within a state to set those regulations. And so this will be a very important election-related case, uh, particularly as uh, you know the 2024 presidential election is increasingly <laughs> right yeah. around the corner. <laughs> Giancarlo, anything that you're watching? Yes, we have uh, a really big case, the uh, Harvard and UNC race admissions case. Oh, okay. So as you'll, you'll probably recall... Uh, uh, Harvard College and the University of North Carolina uh, both use race in admissions and uh, they're not allowed under older Supreme Court precedents to create race quotas explicitly. But they have uh, essentially done that by massaging other race factors to uh, diminish the amount of Asian students they have so that they can give those places to black and Hispanic students. So they have used race uh, they're engaging in race discrimination to reach what they believe is a equitable uh, racial balance in their student bodies. And so those cases 
uh, are, are before the Supreme Court. And uh, this, I'm hopeful at least that the Supreme Court says, you know, enough with the race-based nonsense. Uh, we're not going to do that anymore. And there's there's some reason to believe that they that they will. You know, there's some voices. The Chief Justice, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas, have have made very clear for a long time that. Uh, they're not okay with racial discrimination mm-hmm. uh, in in schools or anywhere else for that matter. So that's a big one that I'm watching. We have another one, a religious liberty case called 303 Creative. You might recall from a few years ago, there was the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. Uh, and the question there was whether a man who is a, a cake artist, if you will, could be punished for not making uh, custom wedding cakes for a gay wedding. He was a devout Christian. Uh, and that uh, case, the court didn't ultimately reach the, the underlying issue because the uh, state had exhibited so much hostility to him in its process that they said, you know, go back and do it again. So this case raises the issue squarely. This is a graphic artist and whether she can be forced to make uh, website designs and things for a gay wedding for which she believes is not uh, not appropriate. Uh, so that'll be a square, square uh facing of that issue so yeah a little more straightforward yep and what is what is the time how how long are the justices on their their break or summer break if you will before they come back to the court they will uh come back to the court to start hearing oral arguments again in october okay they do work so they're they tend to be on vacation they travel a lot over the summer but they are working and what they're doing right now is uh deciding which cases they're going to hear next term okay okay and typically right before the term starts the justices will hold something called the long conference where they're essentially review all of the cert petitions the request for them to review cases that have come up over the summer months. And typically, before they start hearing oral argument, we'll issue kind of a slate of decisions saying which additional cases they'll hear for the term and which ones they're declining to hear. Okay, great. Thank you all so much. I want to give you all a second, though, because you all host a great podcast called SCOTUS 101 that if <laughs> folks listening want want more of this, want to hear what is happening in the court, uh, they need to check out your podcast. So Share with us a little bit about what you all do. Yeah, sure. We uh, we follow the Supreme Court uh, every week that the Supreme Court is in session and hearing cases or issuing oral arguments or issuing opinions. We will uh, have a have a podcast where we where we uh, digest all of it, unpack it for you. And give you a little bit of the Supreme Court gossip going on. That's right. If people can stand listening to uh, more of GC <laughs> and I, uh, we, we uh, do cover Supreme Court gossip. We do a little trivia. And then we typically also have an interview each week, uh, either with a, a judge or a, a lawyer or a practitioner. And I think we get some uh, interesting conversations uh, going during the podcast. That's yeah. right. The trivia is my favorite part of the show. Yeah. Zach is slightly less enthusiastic, <laughs> <laughs> which, of course, means that I like it all the more. <laughs> yeah. I know. I know. More trivia. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> well, I certainly, we'll have to talk about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Zach. <laughs> I certainly uh, encourage our listeners to check out SCOTUS 101 on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you like to listen. And if you want to read more about uh, Zach Smith or Giancarlo Canaparo's work, you can read it at heritage.org um, and search for their names there. But thank you, gentlemen, so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for having us. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening to The Daily Signal Podcast. If you have not done so already, please be sure to subscribe to The Daily Signal Podcast on your podcast listening app of choice. That's Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. If you haven't, leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage your friends and family to subscribe. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be right back here with you all tomorrow morning. 
The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kay Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen and Doug Blair. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, please visit DailySignal.com.